everybody. This is Tracy Malone from NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. Today, I am here with another expert to talk us through grieving. Grieving after narcissistic abuse, grieving the losses that are happening because of your narcissistic abuse is part of the human process of recovery. Grieving is not just for when someone passes. There are stages we need to learn about. There are things that you're probably experiencing right now that you don't maybe have the words for. Today, my expert that I'm bringing in is Dave Weiner. He's from Colorado, and I've interviewed him before on PTSD, and it's one of my favorite videos out there. If you're looking at PTSD, I'll point you to that one as well. But for now, we're going to talk to him. And Dave is a certified trauma professional, a clinical professional, right? He's a therapist and he's a certified grief counseling specialist. That's why we've asked him to come here and talk to you about grieving. So without any further ado, let's welcome Dave. Stay tuned and listen, because at the very end of this, I'm going to give you a link to a, a sheet that I've created with a lot of triggers on it. We can get triggered so easily when it's grief, anger, whatever it is, the hurt that comes with all of this. So if you want to know what your triggers might be, I've got a good checklist that we're going to send you at the end. So stay tuned and let's welcome Dave. Thank you so much for joining me, Dave. Well, thank you for having me. I, I always like talking with you. It is such a delight to have you. And we made a video once before on PTSD that everybody loves. And you're like the guru of information. So I'm so oh. excited that you're here to talk about grieving today. Because when someone has been in a relationship with a narcissist, um, they suffer losses. And it doesn't matter if it, if it was a parent or, or a relationship and a marriage, they, they suffer things like the loss of their identity. The, the, the loss of their story and the comfort of the familiar and in many ways your innocence, uh, secondary family relationships. So yeah. you're losing your in-laws and all of the cousins and the people you've had holidays with forever. Often our, our survivors are, are losing their hope, hope for the future, standard of living. Like think about that if they've been through a divorce they're not going to have their big house anymore. They might have to downsize and, and survive a different way. And that's a loss. It's a loss of a neighborhood if you're moving out and everything you and your children knew about. So dreams, right? it's like I'm, I can go on all day and just be like, oh, one more thing. Oh, one more thing. You know, um, some of the biggest things are our trust losing. You know, we have to grieve our, our trust that we have now lost because of this relationship. Yeah. Um, and so if we were to start off with those basis, how um, does, does grieving have to do with narcissistic abuse survivors? Because in many cases, the person didn't die. And, and they're sitting there going, why am I grieving? I'm so confused, Tracy. So can you explain to us, what does grief have to do with narcissistic abuse survivors? Yeah, it's a good question because in our society, we have somehow assumed that the only acceptable reason to grieve is after someone dies. And that's just not true. Grief is the normal human response to loss. And all those things that you just mentioned are significant losses. Mm -hmm. 
it's important also to, to just sort of point out that grief isn't a single thing. It's not a single emotion. It's a whole constellation of physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual responses um, to that loss. There's also a, a, a type of, um, of grief that's known as disenfranchised grief. And I think that the grief after a narcissistic relationship would fall into this category. Disenfranchised grief is simply grief that's not acknowledged by society. Um, nobody, brings that, you, nobody brings you a casserole if you're getting a divorce. Like acknowledge that your husband died, here's some flowers, here's some pudding. And when when you're in a, the end of a relationship, doesn't matter if it's been 30 years, Right, it, it's not acknowledged by society. And in fact, sometimes it's even the opposite of acknowledged, it's judged. It's no one died or, mm -hmm. or well, you know, you can still get married again or, um, you know, well, at least you have your health. You know, that's the standard one. Yeah. Um, so that, that leaves the, the person who experienced the loss feeling unsupported, feeling judged, feeling invalidated. Um, all that is, is not the fault of the griever. It's a, a systemic problem in our society. So that's why I'm excited to you know that you're exploring this and you're naming that grief is a real result of these kinds of losses. Even life transitions, even the good ones, let alone the difficult ones, create a sense of loss. When something changes, then there's a good chance that something has been lost. Yeah, and, and I know people go through like stages because it, 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 it has its own life to it. And, and I know yeah. that I have the, the book that has the stages in it from um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross and David Kessler, who who named those five in the beginning, but I know David has come up in, with a, a sixth at this point. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about the stages? And and I know that they're liquid. So as you describe them, I want people to know it's not like you are climbing a ladder, right? right. It is something that you can swirl around like a washing machine and go this one day and that the other day and back to the other. Yeah, that. That right there is, is the biggest takeaway when you're thinking about stages of grief, because we hear the word stages and we think linear. Oh, good, I'm done with that one, now I'm in this one. Mm -hmm. And that's just not how grief of any kind works. Grief, almost by definition, is just messy. And there's, not, there's no plan, there's no roadmap, there's no um, you know, A plus B plus C. It's comforting to think that way. And it's comforting to be able to organize um, the sense of progress through the grief journey. But what you just said is absolutely true. Yeah, there are five or maybe six stages in this model. By the way, there's lots of other models and theories about how to work through grief, but we'll stick with the Kubler-Ross um, five stages. So the first stage is denial which can look like numbness or shock, or I can't, this can't be happening. Um, it can involve some kind of false hope. Um, 
it's it's living in a preferable reality versus an actual reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not a character flaw. This is not someone um, fooling themselves. This is a very real and very helpful survival reaction. It's there in our psyche, in our makeup, to keep us from absolute just um, desperation or, or just complete inability to face our day. If we're in denial, then we have some protection. So that, that's important to know that this is not, um, this stage does not represent the, a, a failure of anyone or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the next stage in the model is anger. And this, this can be, you know, the questions, why me? This isn't fair. Why is this happening? Uh, I don't deserve this. There can be anger at yourself. There can be anger, certainly, at the other person in the relationship. There can be anger at attorneys, the police. The system. The system. <laughs> I was just going to say the establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, other people. You know, other people who you don't feel are supportive, whether that's family or friends or coworkers. Um, there can be anger at God or at your sense of spirituality. Why does the universe let this happen? I'm a good person. I don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, this can be a scary phase. Uh, anger can be scary. If we pretend that it doesn't exist, it just festers. And it can come out inadvertently toward innocent bystanders. <laughs> um, we've all done this. We've all been angry about one thing and taken it out on someone else. Also not a character flaw. It's just the way we work sometimes. It's important to recognize what's happening. Uh, and, and anger can actually be a very positive emotion in that it can propel us into some constructive action. We can get so angry that we just have to change, whether that's changing ourselves, changing the system, advocating. I'm getting ahead of myself, but the point is anger is also not a character flaw and it can be a powerful tool. I was going to say when I wrote down that anger is often helpful because it propels us into change. Always, always. if you look at domestic violence victims, they, they stay until they get angry. They stay until they hit that point and go, no, this isn't okay, right? Right. And if you're dealing with the loss of a relationship, it's still healthy to go through it. It's not healthy to live in it for 20 years, but it's healthy to go through it and experience it. So I'm sorry that I interrupted. What's the third stage? The third stage is bargaining, Mm -hmm. which is, um, it's that that what if question. What if I do this? Or if I had only done this, it can be bargaining with yourself, you know, oh, this is going to get better if only I can do this. It can be bargaining with God or, like I said, the universe, however, whatever spirituality uh, is important to you. It can be, you know, if you get me through this, I promise I'll never do this again. (laughs) It's somehow negotiating as if there was a way to avoid what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And again, not a character flaw, a very natural part of the process of of working through a loss. 
the next stage in the model is depression. And that's generally the one that I think our society focuses on when it comes to grief, because we have this image of the griever um, being overwhelmed, distraught, hopeless, helpless, withdrawn. Uh, and certainly all those things are, are understandable and they make sense. And that's part of the depression stage. Also a very important stage to go through. Maybe not a stage that's healthy to be in for 20 years, um, but who am I to judge if someone spends a long time in, in, um, in depression? And the, and the last stage in the model is acceptance. And that can be thought of as sort of re-entering the actual reality. Uh, th this acceptance does not mean approval. It doesn't mean it's okay what happened. It means that you're, you're able to look in the mirror and say, this happened and here I am. And now what? Mm -hmm. um, it's like having a bird's eye view down to it versus being yeah. in all of the anger and the hurt and the thing. And then you're up here going, yep, it happened. Right. It's, it's a, it's, a stage where you're open to exploring options. Mm -hmm. The previous stages sort of cut off the options. And, and that's important. You, 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 can't you can't see the options on day one. Mm -hmm. But when you work through a little bit more, those options become a little bit more visible and that helps accept the reality. Mm -hmm. so the sixth stage that you mentioned is, um, David Kessler is proposing this stage and, and uh, it's the, the making of meaning. So it would be sort of, in theory, after the acceptance stage where you can really grow through your loss. You can focus on what does this mean in my life? How can I make this unwanted, excruciating experience mean something in the greater story of my life? Whether that's, I'm gonna be kind to my Starbucks employee. I'm gonna be um, kinder to nature. I'm going to advocate for change in the system. I'm gonna use my pain to help other people. These are all part of that meaning making stage, which to me is, is sometimes the hardest and sometimes the most empowering, the most important for our growth. Mm -hmm. I really wanna reiterate, well, I, I wanna say first of all, what's most important in these stages is to give yourself permission to be wherever you are. There is no timeline on this. If it has been 20 years and you're angry, give yourself permission to be angry. I would recommend getting some support because that doesn't sound like a comfortable way to live for 20 years, but, but that's support is different than judging. Mm -hmm. I would really encourage people, allow yourself, give yourself permission to be where you are. Mm -hmm. And then I wanna re really reiterate what you said. Again, we hear the word stages and we think linear. These cycle through each other over the, over the years, over the months. Sometimes within one day, you could be feeling two or three different stages. And sometimes you can even feel like you're in different stages simultaneously with different aspects of the grief. Kind of like what you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you've lost your sense of, of financial security. Well, you might be angry about that but you still might be in denial about your sense of trust that you've lost or vice versa. So you can, as I said at the beginning, grief is more than one thing. You can be in more than one place in the journey for the different aspects of your grief. 
So it's like a full house. If you had all the cards, you'd be like, I got them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the real, the, the, the goal of these stages is really um, to learn, to, to, to grow into a place where you can live with your grief instead of living only in grieving. Mm-hmm. So there, that's the big, that's a big shift that, you know, hopefully people can get to is living with grief as opposed to only grieving. Right. That makes sense. So if someone is like trying to figure out how to handle this kind of grieving, you know, and a loss like this, that isn't the death, there's no casserole, you've got a divorce, you broke up with someone, you're deciding to, you know, go no contact with your family, you've got to grieve your whole family loss in, in that situation, right? But how does someone handle going through all of this? Yeah, with delicacy and with grace for themselves. Um, realizing that everyone grieves differently and your grief is going to look different than someone else's grief who might have experienced a fairly similar loss. There's no shoulds in grief. I like to say that that's just a big old pile of should uh, (laughs) when when people judge themselves in in grief. Mm -hmm. Um, We can adapt some of the tools that are maybe more culturally acceptable or known for the loss following a a death. Um, But some of those same tools can be really helpful because the loss is no less real. Number one is just naming and validating the emotions. Um, You know, running from the grief or pretending that you're not in pain is exhausting and it's stressful and it really doesn't help you move forward because grief will pop up. Uh, you can try to ignore it, but it's really patient and it's gonna be there when, you're, when your guard is down. So really just validating where you are, what you're feeling uh, is really important. I think it's really important to avoid getting stuck in the three Ps of thinking. Three Ps are personal, pervasive, and permanent especially, and this is a kind of thinking that is so understandable after a loss like we're talking about, um, a relationship loss. It's really easy to think, this is all, this is my fault, this is me, I must be broken, I must be unlovable. That would be the personal thought process. Mm -hmm. I'll call it a thinking air. Um, The pervasive, this feeling I'm feeling or this, this brokenness, it affects every part of my life. I must be broken in every way. It's pervasive. And that's just not true, right? Uh, but it's easy. It feels like it. It feels like this, whatever is wrong with me is wrong with me in every facet of my life. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a good recipe for feeling stuck and feeling very judged, you know, judging yourself. And the last P is the permanent. I'm going to feel like this forever. Again, absolutely makes sense that you would feel that way. And I'm not suggesting you, you, you need to rush through this process. I'm just suggesting that telling yourself and believing the story that you're telling yourself that I'm done. I'm going to feel like this the rest of my life. That's really disempowering. So you can take some of that power back by recognizing that 
This isn't about me. I may not be perfect, but this is not about me. This, this thing that I'm feeling does not reflect negatively on every aspect of my life. I can still be proud of being a good mother, a good father, a good worker, a good son, or whatever it is. There's lots of roles we all play that we can still be proud of. And this doesn't have to be a life sentence. Yeah, you'll always remember it. Yeah. Uh, and it will always be with you and affect you. But this rawness of the loss, this pain, does not necessarily have to be permanent in its state how it is now. It will change. That's important for people to remember. Absolutely. I think another really important thing um, when we're dealing with any kind of loss, including a relational loss, is, is to be good to yourself, to be kind to yourself, to take care of yourself. Uh, grief is a kind of trauma, and trauma is inherently dysregulating, meaning it throws our sense of balance off physically, emotionally, behaviorally, intellectually. You know, our mental capacity is affected by grieving. Socially, behaviorally, in, in so many different ways, um, grief is dysregulating. So it's really important to take care of yourself physically, emotionally, so socially, behaviorally. In my mind, in, in everyday life, and most importantly, when you're grieving, there's a three-legged stool, exercise, nutrition, and sleep that form the basis for self-care, all of which feel hard when you're grieving a loss and all of which are really important. I know, and you know what, so with, with the trauma, and we talked about this in the PTSD video, um, so many people, you know, who are going through this, like, end of a relationship trauma, they find themselves not sleeping. They find themselves watching YouTube videos all night long, find themselves, like, hopelessly, you know, not being able to do the things that maybe a walk or, or getting some exercise or even eating healthy. They binge on cookies and they just sit there because, well, there's no reason to live. I'll just eat cookies, you know, and that 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 defeats the whole purpose. Because if you're not whole, and I love your three stool analogy thing, it's so perfect because we have to take care of ourselves. If you're not getting sleep, everything is emotionally going to affect you so much more. That's such an important point to make because the same trigger can feel very differently if you are taking care of yourself versus not taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important to know. Um, here's another way that people can support themselves as they work through their, their grieving process. It's looking for beauty. Uh, this sounds really kind of frou-frou and, and kind of frosting on the cake, but, uh, but it actually is an important part because um, you can rewire your brain toward optimism. You are more than this loss. And there is more to life than this loss. I know it's easier for me to say that from the safe distance of this conversation than in the trenches. I get that. Um, engaging in positive self-talk is important so that you don't, you don't have to believe the negative story that you have either heard or that you have told yourself. Mm -hmm. mantras, affirmations, 
again, I know that these can sound a little frou-frou, and they're really, really powerful tools uh, that you can use to support yourself. It's rephrasing things in your brain. It's, it's instead of like, this was the worst thing that ever happened to me, of maybe thinking about like, what did this teach me? Just turning that around and, and that positivity in, go, oh, gosh, I'm saying this. I'll never be over this. I'll never be over this. What if I say I'm in this right now, but I will get over it soon, right? Yeah. That positive yeah. change in, in the story you're telling does make a huge difference. Huge difference. Yeah. And especially when you're exiting a relationship where you have been told or you have um, absorbed the message that you are less than. Yeah. yeah. It's an easy message to start believing if you hear it or feel it often enough. And so there are, there are, are interesting and powerful journaling prompts that can become maybe a daily practice, I would recommend, uh, that would combat that feeling. And I would call this an I am, en I am enough journal. Mm. Every day, it doesn't have to be five pages of Dear Diary. <laughs> you know, it can be one sentence. I am enough today because... I, you know, helped a lost dog find its humans, or I put a quarter in the jar on the counter at Walgreens, you know, for some charity, whatever makes you feel like I am enough today. Uh, there's a really wonderful journaling prompt that is one of my favorites because it fits on a post-it note and it's, it's an acronym, G-L-A-D, GLAD. And it's designed to rewire your brain to look for positives. G stands for one gratitude. One thing you can be grateful for today. L stands for one thing you learned today. These can be big things or these can be small things. I learned that I don't like Rocky Road ice cream. It's something you learn. Or I'm grateful for the the you know yellow aspen in my front lawn the a stands for something you have achieved today i put away the laundry it doesn't have to be this big mother teresa moment it's something that you achieved today i emptied the dishwasher there's always that there's always that right right and the d is something that delighted you this is a hard one sometimes when you're when you're really in the raw grief and loss journey there's always something small that made you smile, made you giggle, even if it's a sarcastic kind of, you know, gallows humor giggle. Um, but there's always something, you know, I, I really liked watching the birds in my bird feeder. That made me smile today. Or something equally feels mundane, but if you really look into it, it can be a real uplifting moment. So GLAD can begin training your brain. Mm -hmm. to look for these moments. And when you find gratitude, which, which I would go into the delighted category with, I tell my, my clients, you know, if you can't find anything to be grateful for, walk outside, look at the grass, look at the, look at the sky, look at that cloud. I can be grateful for that cloud if it's only that simple. The tree in your yard, um, you know, be delighted with the bunny that just popped by, right. those are small. You don't have to go, 
but there's nothing to live for. Well, the bunny made me laugh. Okay, that's one. I get to put it on my list. <laughs> you get to put it on your list. And if you do this glad journaling with some regularity, it's amazing how the brain begins to proactively look for something to journal about. Mm-hmm. You'll wake up in the morning and you'll have a really nice cup of coffee and you'll say, hey, this is my D. This is what delighted me today. And you'll just, you could start making those mental notes. No, I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting to ignore the harder feelings. This isn't putting lipstick on a pig. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still hard feelings that are very real and very authentic. And you, you own those, you deserve those. And I'm not trying to suggest that, oh, well, let's just whitewash over that. Um, So what I'm suggesting is, is balancing. You know, the idea of, of a grief journey is not necessarily to turn down the volume of the grief, mm-hmm. but to turn up the volume on the coping skills. I mean, if you, if you can do both, fine, but grief is on its own timetable. It'll turn the volume down on its own. We can control turning up the volume on the coping skills. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think too, with, with when we're, we're going through something like this, you know, I tell people like the brain is like a hard drive. It's, it's this big, right? And if it's consumed 100% with the grief, the sadness, the loss, there's no light coming in, right? As soon as we take a little bit of the pie to some positivity, we, we get a little break, right? And then maybe tomorrow we get a, a little bit more. We're, we're looking to make small gains in the way we change our thoughts. Not like you said, not just going, no, I don't have them. I'm fine. I don't know what you're all talking about because that's your neighbor down the street that told you that dumb thing, right? This is is our brain and and just going, just change a little bit at a time at your own pace. Know that that will help you to to come out of that all consuming grief, you know, and anger and hurt ball. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's another journaling prompt. As you can tell, I'm a big fan of journaling. I know it doesn't work for everyone and, and that's totally fine. You don't have to commit anything to paper. It could just be thoughts in your head. Um, but it's a, it's a series of questions to ask yourself. Who was I before this relationship? Mm-hmm. Who was I as this relationship was becoming more and more problematic or as I was realizing that it was unhealthy? Who was I? Who am I now? And most importantly, who do I want to be? Or, and or who am I becoming? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that those four questions can, can help someone recognize that there's life before loss and life after loss. Mm-hmm. Certainly there was life during loss and it sucks. Mm-hmm. But that's not the end of the story. Right, exactly. And, and it is about them just sort of looking at 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 the potential of the new story, right? So many people come and just go, I don't know who I am anymore. I'm like, well, who were you? And and what what parts about that do you wanna be again? Did you give up things? Like maybe you like to play the guitar and you haven't played it. Find those loves and put that back into your life. And that's part of the next chapter. That's part of the new story. Yeah, yeah. And that story can can be written quickly. It can take, months. It can feel like it takes years. Mm-hmm. I really want to really normalize that everyone's journey takes its own time. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So um, if someone's stuck in this grief, in this process, what are some of the things they can do to help grow through it? Well, I think all the things we just talked about mm -hmm. uh, can hopefully help someone remain unstuck or to unstick themselves if they get stuck. Mm -hmm. um, I would add to that, certainly, if you're feeling stuck, reach out for help, reach out for support. You do not have to walk this journey alone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might feel very isolating and very lonely. Mm -hmm. Part of that is because our society tends to isolate grievers of all kinds. We don't like to focus on the bad stuff. We like to be the happy, bright, shiny people we portray ourselves on Facebook. That's why when we give them the casserole, we've like, okay, we're done. We're done. <laughs> right. So find one or two trusted people who aren't, who aren't going to judge you, who aren't going to rush you, who aren't going to um, should you to death or uh, give you unsolicited advice. We're just going to see where you are and they're going to be there with you. Sometimes that's a friend. Sometimes that's a clergy member. Sometimes that's a professional, a mental health professional. Sometimes it's all of the above. Uh, but find that that tribe. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's another person in grief, mm -hmm. uh, or who have who is maybe six months ahead of you, or sixty years ahead of you, whatever the case may be. I know, um, I know when my mom actually passed, they had a grieving thing at the um, hospice. Lots of lots of coaching, and and again that community that you're not all alone, and right. and this this is not necessarily there's, you know, narcissistic is not going to put you into the hospice grieving place, but that community is what people will really, you know, grow from. So like my Facebook group, someone that understands where you are and, and get that same support. Because again, if you're in a narcissistic relationship and your friends and family don't understand, um, it's harder for them to give you the right help. They're not bringing you the casserole as we've discussed and their information, as you said before, is going to be like, oh, come on, you could start again. You know, let's let's get back on the horse. That sort of advice. Finding people that get it is going to be the big difference here. Well, and, and, and let's be honest, sometimes that advice is is important to hear. It's a, kind of that accountability partner, right. you know, that person to go to the gym with. Um, so that advice in itself is not necessarily wrong. It's all about timing, intent, and feeling validated before you hear that advice. Right. You know, hearing that advice the second day after a divorce is destructive. That's verbal terrorism. <laughs> um, but hearing it two and a half years later of, well, how can we, how can, how can we work together to help you fill in the blank you know mm -hmm. that might be good advice and good timing and then uh, a good friend who might be able to get away with saying that at that moment mm -hmm. uh, so I don't want to portray that kind of advice as always bad and run from people who give that to you right. um, you'll, you'll know when the time is right to hear that and hopefully the people around you will know when the time is right to say it to say that mm -hmm. yeah I have just one more question for you yeah. because we mentioned it like it just kind of popped in for a second there, but I know that because let's say we're doing all this work and a trigger comes, 
like boom. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I thought it was here. And again, they're all climbing that little ladder of steps. And then all of a sudden that trigger happens and, and you go shooting down to the bottom of the pile again. Yeah. What can people do about that trigger? You know, my answer again is treat yourself delicately with grace. Allow yourself to feel triggered. Now, I know that's not a satisfying answer. I, I get that. And I wish I had pixie dust to spread over the pain. Uh, there's, there's a couple different kinds of triggers. There's the triggers that you can anticipate, like for instance, the holidays. Big trigger for any kind of loss. Um, you can mentally, emotionally, and practically prepare for those. You can choose how do I want to navigate the holidays this year? Who do I want? Who is safe and supportive to be around? Do I want to take a trip by myself and ignore the holidays? Do I want to buy myself a gift? Do I want to donate? Do I want to work at, at a soup kitchen? There's lots of ways to prepare for how you can anticipate feeling with that trigger. And there's lots of, I'm just picking on the holidays, but there's lots of triggers that we can prepare for. And then there are the ambushes, the triggers that just come up, a song on the radio, the song you dance to at your wedding, um, a 20-year-old who looks like your wife did when you met her, uh, ambushes that just, you walk around the corner and boom, you're confronted with a trigger. I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, and it's probably far more time than we have today, but... It's, it's about self-care. It's about recognizing and validating. I feel triggered. I'm in pain right now. Um, allow yourself to be back into whatever part of that cycle of those stages you find yourself. And hopefully before that happens, you have built up a toolbox of ways to take care of yourself. Whether that's, I'm really angry right now. I know that if I go for a run, I'll feel better. Or God, I'm feeling really triggered right now and I'm getting this flashback. I know that if I take some deep breaths, I'm gonna just be able to regulate myself a little bit. Mm -hmm. Are they magic solutions? No, but if you, if you have enough tools in your toolbox, you'll find the one that fits for that particular challenge, that particular ambush or trigger. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love what, that, what you're saying here because the ambush one is the one, I, I've never heard it phrased that way, but that's the one that, you know, that, that blindsides everybody yeah. and puts you down right back into the depression, the anger, um, and, and possibly the denial as well. I have this list that I will put a link to down below, and it is absolutely not looking like this at the moment. This is all my note stuff, <laughs> all these drawings and things. Um, it's a list of triggers that my groups and, and my, my people have been putting together. If mm -hmm. you understand that something is going to trigger you, when it happens, you can go, oh, I'm triggered. And, and that helps alleviate the, oh my God, I'm going right back down to the terrible place. Oh, it was just a trigger. I'll deal with it however I deal with it now. But if you don't know that, you know, um, again, it's not loss. It, it might be someone else invalidating you. It might be someone else um, treating you with the silent treatment. You know, this is, this is the kind of the, the triggers that people have. And then like, if they're starting to date again and someone like 
gives you the silent treatment and you just go right back into, am I not good enough? What's wrong with me? And you, you start to have all of those feelings again. So knowing what your triggers are, and this is a good checklist is sort of like, oh yeah, I get triggered by that is going to help you recognize that it's a trigger yeah. so that you can sort of steer the boat around and going, I'm not going into the abyss again. It's just a trigger. I can handle it, handled it before, and, and you can move on, but not knowing what your triggers are. And then they're going to come is going to be another opportunity for blindsidedness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really, you know, not to reference our last, you know, not to cross sell here, but um, <laughs> when you are faced with a trigger, really, whether it's a, an, a, a, an anticipated trigger or an ambush, that can bring up a lot of very real post-traumatic stress symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would reference back to our previous conversation about the very real nature of PTSD related to narcissistic abuse. And I think we, if I remember right, we talked about some ways to regulate when you feel triggered um, in a post-traumatic yeah. kind of world. Yeah, we'll totally put a link down below because the, the, the topics and any recovery overlap both of them, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. PTSD is, is not linear. It, it, it rolls around and shows its little head and you think you're getting better. You get a trigger, boom, you go back down, you're, you know. So it, it is very much the same sort of steps and, and stages, if you would, of, of recovering from narcissistic abuse. It's, you know, all of the things that we've been talking about while we've been talking about it in the grief um, you know, genre here, the reality is these are steps of recovery as well. You know, Absolutely. going through the depression, going through the, the bargaining, you know, or the, the self-doubt, there's so much that happens through the stages of recovery. So crossing and understanding both of them is yeah. how you start to heal. Yeah. Remember, grief is inherently trauma traumatic. Mm -hmm. Grief is a trauma, or I should say loss is a trauma. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly why these things sort of dovetail. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Do you have anything like last minute, like, bing, this is one thing I forgot to say. <laughs> Gosh, I could go on for a long time. <laughs> I, I will spare our viewers my <laughs> waxing poetic. Um, well, you yeah. are a brilliant man. And I love having you here because every time we talk, um, you just fill up the room with light and, and hope. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to chat with you.